Welcome to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast with your host, award-winning realtor, Matt Glenn, and top producing mortgage broker, Taylor Atkinson. Professionals in the industry, enthusiastic entrepreneurs, and successful investors. When it comes to real estate, we're all in. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for tuning in. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, dude? I'm doing great. Thank you. A lot of big things happening on the show lately. We have been having some professionals in the industry, accountants, appraiser for this show. And without saying too much, maybe us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are also having a pretty big time lawyer coming on the show in a couple of weeks. So we're actually recording that a couple of days after this episode comes out. So if anybody wants to address any legal questions, concerns, throughout real estate transactions, fire us a DM. Yeah, if you have a question for a lawyer, we can ask them. Like Lawyers charge a lot of money to answer these kinds of questions, so he's coming up. Yeah, we're trying to use this as like a free platform for you guys. So, you know, obviously we're just asking questions that we're interested in, but any topics that you want covered, yeah, send us a message and we'll fire away at that. But yeah, we want to jump right into the show. It's an awesome show. Taylor Dodora, I've used him personally, but he is a wealth of knowledge and yeah, I think you guys will find a lot of good value out of this show. Yeah, it's a good one. Once again, it's two Taylors versus one Matt, but I survived. Yeah, the next Matt is yet to come on. It'll have to be a good one. I know. I'm looking forward to the two Matts versus one Taylor day. Yeah, I might just have to bow out on that one. <laughs> okay, enjoy the show, guys. Okay, welcome to the show, Taylor. Thank you for having me, Our Taylor team. and Matt. TMT. I'm just trying to find as many Taylors as I can. I Absolutely. Know. You've had a Taylor. Oh, yeah, I saw in your... Yeah, Tim Muso was on. Awesome. I always often thought that I like Taylor as a female better. No offense to us. You know, I was taking it as offense and then I was like, wait, your name is also... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm allowed to go there. I just think, I mean, it, it goes smoothly. But are you Tay? Do you get Tay from your buds or how? No. no. Do you? I do. Yeah. Do people call you Matt? <laughs> well, Matt already is short. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, Matthew. Okay, well, Taylor, we like to just let our guests, you know, connect with our listener. What's your perfect Friday look like in terms of work, productivity, and then leading into the weekend? Obviously, starting with a podcast. I mean, that's yeah. a good way to do it. I'm going to have to do this every week now. Yeah. Friday's easier. They're more relaxing. It's kind of like, you know, during the Christmas season where people expect a little less of you. So the pressure's off. However, I still like to keep the pressure on and finish lots that day. I typically professionally have set deadlines for Fridays. So it's good to have those done for the week. Things that hang over for next day or for the following Monday, that's a good way to go backwards. I've often felt for myself and told my team that finish things. You know, you can still mull them over and have fresh eyes on Monday, but get them 99% complete and move on. One of the reasons for our success is getting stuff out. If you leave it, it can drag for several more hours the following day. But for me, getting up and certainly being optimistic, I'm not one of these people that's crazy early riser and puts on 10K before six. <laughs> Never have been, but I get up and you know throw some push-ups and sit-ups, a couple of squats just to get things going and then start planning the day. I'm a shower day planner. You got a whiteboard in the shower? Exactly. Like my wife's always kind of like, what are you doing? Like, well, I'm getting the day worked out here <laughs> before I call it the beautiful chaos hits. I have a seven and a nine-year-old. So at some point in the morning, we meet and greet and you never quite know what mood they're going to be in. So just prepping for the day, healthy breakfast, 
get in and go for it. We do jeans day at the office. There's just there's something a little more relaxed about it. And yeah, work hard to get things out and then celebrate that. Celebrate the day, celebrate the week. At the end of the day, it's really important to me. Sometimes my drive home isn't long enough in a way to make that transition. But I mentioned to you prior that the work-life blend is a skill and I'm still working on it, that's for sure, but getting better coming down from a day. Someone once told me to physically do something, you know, bundle up your day and work life and throw it into the bush on the way in the door. Well, I don't do that, but I have a breezeway between garage and house and just kind of physically look out into the field and make a point of going, okay, I did the thing today, this week. Awesome. You've done it. Now switch gears because this beautiful chaos that lies within across the threshold is about to hit in the face and your kids don't give a shit how your day went. They just want dad. So yeah, that's success Friday. I guess continued with maybe a glass of wine with my wife, making dinner. I've recently found throwing on some dinner jazz. Super nice. Yeah. A little random for me. My friends, if they ever listen to this, they're going to probably pepper me on this one, but throwing on a little dinner jazz. If they ever listen to this, they will listen to it. Do people listen to this? (laughs) Yeah. Growing by the minute. Yes. There you go. I hope I uh, don't make things go backwards for you. And then it's movie night. But yeah, a perfect Friday is the right mix of relaxation, getting stuff out by the end of the week, obviously satisfying clients, deadlines, and then celebrating that and transition into weekend dad mode. Yeah, I was kind of thinking as you were talking about that, like the transactional state, it kind of like, I'm not saying Matt has no stress in it, like you are on it, but it kind of like goes down. And then by the time the appraisal needs to be ordered, usually coming from a broker and it's usually a deadline yep. and it's usually a, you know, a price that you're probably like, oh God, what are people doing? Yeah. And then, oh, there yeah. needs to be like rental income and like a lot of pressure just starts trickling down the transaction line. So we find it's typically the last thing or one of the last things. Yeah. yeah. Typically that home inspection has happened. Everything's kind of aligned and folks are waiting to order that appraisal before they know everything else is set up. So it's often the call or the text or the email saying, got this condition removal on Tuesday. What do you think? And we're used to that. That's fine. So why? Well, so for me, it's usually like we want to get the commitment letter from a lender first. Of course. Because we need to, you know, it's got to be directed to the lender. Yes. But I guess, is there an opportunity should like the system change where an appraisal is ordered before a listing is like, would you like to be Uh, higher uh, up in the order? I mean, to me, appraisal should be ordered if a transaction is looking like it's going to happen. It gets everyone on the same page. No more surprises. We would love it if sellers had them sitting there. Of course, buyers can't necessarily use that appraisal that someone else has done, but it certainly corrals things and can expedite the process. When we get orders that say, hey, yeah, we got some time getting ready for all this. Subjects are uh, in two weeks. Music to our ears. I think the more people on the same page, the better. You hear that, Matt? Subjects, two weeks. <laughs> we're, yeah. You guys don't need that much. At least we're a balanced yeah. market. Yeah. I mean, it's either that or no subjects at all. And then I'm like, I don't care. Like, the pressure is not on me. This is true. You're yeah. subject free, buddy. Go for it. Yeah, rock and roll. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, low-hanging fruit, I'm just curious if you can, you know, give us a definition. BC assessments have come out recently. What's yep. kind of the difference between BC assessments and actual appraisals? It's a very common question. Not the easiest to answer, or not the easiest at least to sound good when I answer. (laughs) Assessments, let's be honest here, they can be all over the place. I think very generally, right now in the residential world, they're kind of as close as they've been for many years because we had 
that exponential growth for a time. Assessments, people always have to remember, are effectively a year behind. They're based on the value from the previous July and the condition from the previous October. Why they do that, good question. But they've now kind of caught up. This year, for the first in a while, we're seeing a lot that are over. And that's on the rare side historically, but some that are over. And our firm also is involved with uh, assessment appeals. So we see those. But uh, generally these days, a lot closer assessment, great in a lot of ways and market value, you know, should be kind of the fairest and equitable way to tax people. There's millions of properties and only so many appraisers. They don't do what we do. They don't come into every single home and analyze the heck out of it. I don't even and think they drive by. Sometimes they do something. They don't often. It's yeah. a Google Earth photo, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and they're relying on data from some building permit from 1978 or what have you. But a lot of new homes, they'll show up and check them out, of course. Generally... Hey, they do kind of as well as they can with information, what they have, but it's a regression formula. It's called a regression analysis where there's just this, you know, a big long formula with several different variables attached to that. And the weight of the variables are based on the different characteristics, you know, neighborhood, lot size, home size, quality, out the bottom end spits estimate of value. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes often until they have to redo a whole role or they get checked on things, they get an assessment appeal that is laid before them. They're not having to look specifically at an individual property to kind of recalibrate. The difference in terms of refining overall, I don't have exact numbers for you, but I'd say it's probably the closest it's been in years. Yeah. But we see some that are hundreds and hundreds off. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So a few clients and we're in this situation where, you know, maybe somebody's buying from their parents or a friend or like not a true private deal, but they're trying to come up with the value without having a real estate agent involved. And obviously like Matt has a bunch of information and data that you pull from for your CMA to kind of, of course, yeah. say, this is what we're yeah. going to list it at. Yeah. But then the market also dictates what it's going to actually sell at. Sure. So they're in this situation where they're like, yeah, you know, this is where BC assessment is. Like, what's your opinion? I'm like, I don't know. It kind of varies. Like the market would dictate what it would actually sell at. Yep. You could get a real estate agent involved or you could pay for an appraisal. And they're like, yeah, maybe we'll do an appraisal. I'm like, okay, that's going to be a few hundred bucks, you know, yep. like at least if it's just done like privately, there's not a huge rush. You're not directing it to a lender. And they're like, a few hundred bucks. I'm not going to spend that. But we're talking like a million dollar transaction. You know, it's a really small part of the puzzle there that doesn't really cost that yep. much. And, you know, for you guys, like it's a four year degree, like to be a mortgage broker, you could do it in a few months. It's not that difficult, yeah. but like an appraiser, you guys are worth your weight where you're actually like sifting through data daily. Right. So, well, we certainly think we are. I mean, Hey, there's nothing rocket science about what we do. Yes. You have to have a four year degree and then a couple more years through solder. But to come back to your point about the few hundred dollars in cost relative to what's happening, it's certainly always been our pitch and it's more than a pitch. It's just a reality that that appraisal can be utilized as a tool, you know, for various reasons, just to, to get people on the same page, especially family members, you know, and just have this unbiased look at it that's based on, you know, the science and art of the market. I think there's a misconception often we do is that it's just a, hey, add up the sticks and the stones, add them together. Here's the numbers. Like, well, no, there's so much more qualitative analysis involved in the background about what's happening with the market, supply and demand, and where market participants apply different values and the variables uh, that go on along with it. But yeah, for you to suggest something like that to anyone in your family, I think is fantastic. And we say, hey, well, here's a $400 report. 
You know, this is a $1.5 million property that one party thinks is 1.7 and the other thinks is 1.2. There's a lot of money at play. There's a lot of emotion at play. Let us help you, you know, get it corralled. Well, and even if I guess you're switching from like your primary residence to a rental, it's not a bad idea to get that value. You know, if you're talking capital gains in yeah, the future, good point. good point. like that could save you thousands and thousands in capital gains tax. So, and we do that. That's one of the many functions of our work, working for individuals, investors, and accountants to do just that. And often we're working retrospectively. So meaning, hey, you know, account says I have to get an appraisal because at such and such a time, I either, you know, converted it one way or the other. And we have to look at capital gains starting from that point or ending at that point or what have you. And then we're going back in time and we have the data. Again, it's not rocket science. However, it can take us more time and the cost can be a little higher for that report to have to go back several years and find the right comps and put our minds in that the headspace of what that actual market was doing at that time versus just doing it back then when you knew it was probably coming and saving yourself a few bucks. But yeah, we do work for that type of function regularly. Well, there's one other thing I'd like highlight for customers is, you know, if we're in like a tight subject removal period and they're like, oh, we're just waiting on the appraisal. We know it's going to come in. This is a great deal. Yeah. It's not just the value. It's not like you're looking at foundation, but if something pops up in a report or you guys see something and yep. it gets disclosed to a lender and then the lender's not willing to lend on that, basement suites that are non-conforming that you're using rental income, but maybe the door isn't like a lockable door. Like those little stove outlet. Yeah. Like those little things. Absolutely. Good call for the suite for the market rent estimate. Like if that kills a deal and we can't use that lender, it really puts the pressure on everyone else that made that transaction happen. So just, I guess the point would be, it's a very necessary tool that needs to be done. And you said like unbiased, which is pretty powerful as well. So most lenders, like I'm not allowed to even choose who the appraiser is. It yeah. has to go through a blind order. Yeah. Some lenders don't let you pay for them. And like, it has to just be, everyone's very independent. Called AMC. So appraisal management companies that wedge their way into the system. 10 or 20 years ago. And so you're having to order through them. And fortunately don't often get to choose who does it or the right appraiser for the job. But yeah, to come back to your points about the more than just value, we do thousands and thousands and thousands of appraisal reports for purchases. I would say that in my career, the number of times that the value has come in less or significantly less than the purchase price, I could count on a hand or two. Generally, our market is very good at figuring itself out in terms of value. Yes, there's definitely the odd time where we look at things and go, no, there's something funny happening here. Or if we haven't thought of this, there's funny business, but that's very rare. So you haven't seen that happening lately in your business? Not yet. We're in a transitioned and transitioning market, Matt, for sure. There's all these other factors now, and great, we can use rental income to help qualify. But that's another factor of our appraisal work that, hey, we have to work that out. And like you said, that can squash a deal if there's not enough income potential out of that home or that suite to help applicants qualify. So too can remaining economic life. Remaining economic life is probably one of the biggest factors that comes into play. And that is the estimate of how long this real property that we're looking at here as it is, is going to last. And so typically if this is a teardown, but folks have applied as if it's going to last for another 50 years and loan to values and all the things. Yeah. Sometimes gets, you know, portrayed as the bad person for sure. But that needs to be considered 
as well. Typically, lenders want to see the remaining economic life estimate of at least five years more than the AM that's being applied for. Yeah, that's a great point because there was a property that we're working on and that was a big issue for it. So you're protecting the lender, you're protecting the client, like you're just kind of the mediator to make sure that, you know, no one's going to essentially lose their shirt on this. That's it. A transaction, you know, specific to that function, we come in as extra insurance, really. We are heavily insured. Lenders know that. They like that. But we're just coming in with nothing to gain or lose here. We do our job and say, you know, what our opinion of value is. But along with that comes so much qualitative information and analysis that the lenders and we think that particularly the buyer, obviously seller just wants to move on and get done with the deal. But we think everyone involved should appreciate and we're talking to realtors. A good appraiser is talking to the realtor involved. Hey, how did this go? Do you have any other offers? What do you know for showings like? What was the feedback? Do you have any other you know, listings that you think, what's the market been like? How much competitive supply exists? You know, so when you look at back at time, you know, the kind of the depth and breadth of our qualitative analysis is a lot more than meets the eye because it's the market. We're trying to figure out what, you know, humans they've decided to pay and sell for based on all these factors involved beyond just the sticks and stones of that particular home. One thing you kind of brought up there is, so for insured properties like CMHC insured, they don't usually get appraisals. And if they do, it's like an AVM. Yes. It's less equity. I know there's insurance on it, like default mortgage insurance, but why would lenders not care so much about that? Just because it's insured and they have no risk? Exactly. Yeah. Crazy. It's backed up by a big old policy and a lot more than ours was, and ours is big and exactly right. I mean, it's in a way counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, there's greater risk in a lot of ways. For the listener, if you're less than 20% down, less than a million dollar owner occupied, you'll get default insurance, but generally those don't require- Which you pay for. Yeah, you definitely pay for it. It gets added to your mortgage balance, but generally they don't require an appraisal because the lender's comfortable because they have that insurance, but there's so much less equity. They never do or they rarely do? Very rarely. We do work for your gen worths, and your CMHC from time to time, without a doubt, but it's rare. Yeah. Like at that stage. Like they'll do an AVM sometimes, which is just yeah, plugs it into the computer and spits it out. Yes or no kind of thing. A lot of times we're doing work for those. What are their Taylor? Are there four entities that back high loan to value? Mm-hmm. We'll do work for them on the back end. If things haven't gone well or if the market's changed, then we'll have to come in. Yeah. Just like you said, it's counterintuitive. Yeah. I didn't know that. Where's the market going? Like you're seeing data, you've been doing this for 15 years. Do you feel there's still a runway in the residential, commercial, multifamily? Like what excites you, I guess, moving forward? Maybe I'll start with saying, you know, kind of my slant and my investment perspective has always been and always will be long-term. I don't pretend to be the person or the professional out there that's pushing short-term, look for this specific opportunity and you'll make millions next year. Real estate is long-term. I think it would be naive to suggest, number one, for anyone to get into real estate, you know, to look for the short-term wins. And also naive for me to suggest that I have any flipping clue as to what the market's going to do with this tiny world that we now kind of live in. We really, it's such a small world. There's so many factors that can dramatically and quickly impact market. However, we live here and it's the cliche thing to say that we're in the Okanagan. 
what better place, but it's absolutely true, you know, in the world, what better place, you know, there are equal places in my opinion to invest, but here I don't find that there's anything better. In terms of where the market's going, my prediction is that we need to putter away a little bit for a few months or, or a year here and just see we're finding there's a lot of wait and see mentality. Yeah. Matt, you're probably dealing with that daily. Yes. And obviously, well, both of you, of course, Taylor and well, rates. Do I wait? Do I wait? Yeah. Do I wait? yeah. On that note, to buy real estate, I get it. If it's, you know, related to your primary residence or a vacation home or something, then you might feel the need to be a little more selective. But if it's for investment, you buy whenever you can buy. Save up enough money. Do not listen to the noise. If you have the down payment and you qualify, you buy. So I think... Yeah, we're not going to see the big gains that we've we kind of got used to for the last three or four years, yeah. obviously, in the short term here. But that doesn't mean that there's not some fantastic opportunities for the long term. Multifamily, of course, it's there and it's going to be there for our lifetimes. And this affordability factor is huge. Industrials exploded. So that's good. They work hand in hand. Yeah. Jobs, resident, you know, they kind of cycle back and forth. Do I think in the short term, there's a lot of you know, meat left there in that industrial, industrials doubled, tripled, you know, in terms of land in the last few years. Obviously, you know, we can't expect to see that again for a while. Yeah. But man, so many pockets, places like in Vernon, and you probably hear me, you know, say the word Vernon and talk about North Okanagan, works. that's where we're based and where we spend, you know, a lot of our time. But the opportunity there's just in the Swan Lake corridor of with the new sewer, to come. Obviously, it's behind Shocker, you know, like any big project uh, behind by a few years. But that corridor, getting sewer and being our next big service commercial and industrial corridor, look for very solid upticks there. Another good, and this is my opinion, downtown Vernon. It's been sitting there a little dormant and we've had land value rates, you know, land rates sitting at 75, 80, 75 to 100 bucks, depending on the size of the site. Yeah. For years, Clone has just been exploding. Clone is obviously our forecast in Vernon, but it's probably one of the things if I had a big pocket full at the moment, I'd be probably trying to buy as much commercial land, ideally with some old building on it or what have you that produces income, of course, but to get my hands on as much commercial downtown Vernon land as possible. We're talking like 30th and 34th. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, oh, phew. You have me stressed out when you're like, well, so downtown. Vernon, <laughs> it's going to be a good one. That's funny. That's where you mentioned that. That's where we, uh, where we met. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, quite a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to me. I mean, maybe I'm just completely wrong. I just thought appraisers were more conservative and like pessimistic. But like what you said there, which Matt and I have said a lot in the past too, is if you can save up and you can qualify buy because you don't know what government regulations are going to come out that are going to yeah. restrict your borrowing power. Inflation is going to like erode your savings. Yeah. Like there's just so many factors. If you can buy yeah. and you can afford to hold long-term. Yeah. You got to be able to float the property though. So yeah. yeah. Pay for it. But yeah, I agree. If the numbers work, they're going to work for you. I think my, it's a good time to buy. My take is I'm an investor as much as I'm an appraiser. My an hour by that, I mean my wife and then we actually are partners. Yeah. On most of our staff with my sister and her hobby. So my brother-in-law, we make a fantastic team. I manage it all, but it's all long-term. And our mentality has always been either buy because we have the purchasing power or LOC or something to dip into and then work your butt off to pay that off and get the next one. Yeah. For me, you know, my wife, very fortunate to is interior health and we'll have a nice, comfortable pension. But for me, nothing. And our real estate 
is our retirement and the cash flow that it will produce once all the, you know, knock on wood mortgages are paid off. And maybe some of them aren't ever, but there's certainly enough cash flow at that time. The time to buy is always now, guys, in my opinion, on the investment side and just be in it long term. You mentioned kind of the pessimistic thing. I mean, yeah, it's again, another unfortunate misconception. It's our fault as appraisers. We've done a bad job of marketing ourselves. Yeah, sorry, uh, I'm not stereotyping. No, not, no. This is, it's a good point. I came into the profession and kind of was, you know, back then it was, you know, you're just the people in the background, just kind of quietly do your work and move along and, you know, don't be out there. Don't have stickers and swag with names on it advertise it. And I get it. Confidentiality is key. So it's not like showing up to homes and our vehicles are peppered with appraisal names, but promoting the profession and what we have to offer and promoting, you know, reality and optimism where it's warranted. That misconception, I guess, that appraisers just come in and we're all just bank appraisers. And how many times in my career I'd be wealthy if they were each worth a buck that I've heard, oh, you know, it's a bank appraisal. That'll be low. What do you mean low? It is what it is. I don't give a shit what it's for. Like yeah. doing my job. The market's the market. We're here to analyze it. We're not here to make it up. We're not here to influence it. We're just analysts of it. And obviously, you know, aside from that, especially as investors, we're advocates and stewards of it. You yeah. know, so lately, I know Taylor and I have both had appraisals on our deals come in low. So we have to scramble to figure out the financing on that. If this happens a lot, like what point is it? the buyer sets the market. You know, like you look at comparables, a buyer is willing to pay that price. Why is it appraising low? Like- I'll shed a bit of light. So one sure. of mine just came in low as just a standard, you know, one bedroom apartment. The other one was pre-construction. Yeah, so maybe there's a reason why on that. But yeah, like you had, it was just a pre-built single family, like it was yeah. existing, right? I've just been hearing more and more about this. And I'm like, it's almost like if there's enough that are coming in low, at what point is it just right that the prices are right, right? Like- well, hey, it's a very standard thing or a common thing to have happen once, you know, on the other side of a cooling. Yeah. You know, we've had a cooling, we've had a transition. Obviously, we don't need to beat the mortgage rate thing to death, but so inevitably going to happen. However, Probably the tough thing for you two is you often don't get to see the appraisals, understand potentially why that is, obviously, is, you know, the comparables and maybe the right ones were used. Maybe they weren't. We certainly hope they were. Whether there was a adjustment downward for time and changes in marketing conditions, if it's a certain property type that's an apartment, sounds like there should be lots of data and, you know, relative number of comps around. But if it's a property type where there just hasn't been many sales of it recently, and we got to use a sale from six or eight months ago, and there's an adjustment downwards there, whereas you, Matt, say to your buyers or your sellers, well, here's the comps. Okay, boom. And then, so, okay, that's sold for eight. So ours should be eight because ours is very similar and doesn't take into account our softening and what's happened in buyer sentiment into it. But that's always a really tough one because often there just isn't evidence yet to support upward or downward adjustment. So as a listing agent, I get a low appraisal yeah. from the buyer. So they come to me and say, we need to lower your price or walking away or whatever happens. What do I do? Do I go to a mortgage broker like Taylor and say, listen, your appraisal isn't right? Like, cause my case, I had, I think three other offers that were all higher that just didn't come together sure. for whatever reason, but they were like, I could, I guess, present those to the mortgage broker and hope that they go to bat for this. Or like, I have noticed too, that it's been one company that has been lower appraising everything in my experience anyway. Like, can I tell the lender that, listen, I don't want that appraising company to do the appraisal. Or you, do I have any say on this at all? Or is it just the bank that says this? Sure you do. And to me, if that's going to happen, you should be able to see the report and or just better understand the reasoning for that. It shouldn't just be like, a no, 
came along didn't get approved. Like, well, let's educate also, everyone. I'm not entirely trusting the buyer agent there. Well, tell me the because the appraisal report is property of the lender. Yeah. So even though the client pays for it, and this is a tough one to communicate, the client pays for it. The appraisal goes to the lender. Technically, we can't share that with anyone. It's the lenders. Yeah. So it's not like they can come back to you, the listing agent, and say, hey, here's the report. Yeah, of course. And we deal with that on the daily. And Why is it like that? Like Taylor said, it really just has to do with who owns that report. It's such a funny kind of bit of a conundrum to be in because you could have three different parties involved, one person that's ordered it, one person that's paying, and one person that, whose name's at the top and is relying on it. And only the name on the top, that lender, gets the copy and gets to own that copy. They can choose to obviously give it to folks if they want. But we get that all the time. Hey, what, I've why, paid for it. Why can't I get this? And not share it? Don't think most, you know, lenders and conventionals sitting at the top really care. For us, Taylor Atkinson phones up and orders a report. We're loyal to him. That's his. At some point, it's not necessarily fair for a buyer or an applicant to just get their hands on that and just go shop it around after Taylor's done hours and hours and hours of work. Yeah. And I don't know either. It is kind of a weird one, but potentially it is. It gets sent to the lender because the lender knows that there's skin in the game from the purchaser and they're not going to then go to the next lender and the next lender yeah. and the next lender, right? You don't want to waste the lender's time. So if it gets sent to them, it's like, all right, we are committing to fund this file. Yes. But if you just have a report and you're like, I'm just going to take it from bank to bank and see if I can manipulate somebody. Yeah. So I think once you get to that stage, there's a we, commitment level. As a buyer's agent, say I'm going to write an offer on a property yeah. and the listing agent says, just so you know, there's three offers on this property. As a buyer agent, I'm like, you're just lying to me. Don't believe you. I can't expect that listing agent to send me the offers, but if I really am curious, I can call their brokerage. I can figure out if there are other offers. I can't figure yes. out the information, but I can prove it. I was in the situation where I just had to take this person's word for it yep. that the appraiser came in low because they were asking us for mm -hmm. money off. And I was just, it was frustrating because I was like, what's the recourse here? How do I explain this to my seller that their appraisal is low? Even though we've had three other offers that are higher, it just doesn't make any sense. And I was like, well, why don't you just get another appraisal? And like, the bank won't allow it. There was no real recourse besides take it. Sometimes as a broker, it depends on the lender, but you can see the appraisal before it's sent. So you could stop it and reorder it somewhere else or appeal it. Like most of the time, again, it's arm's length. Like they don't want it to be biased. It just goes directly to the lender. You don't see it until after. So if that was the case, there's not really much you can do about it. It right? does vary from lender to lender, whether they'll allow a second opinion. We do that all the time. I'm sure there's been the odd second opinion of after ours in the past, but you're right. Often once a lender sees it and goes, oh, that's it. You know, we do reliance letters all the time to Taylor's point about them not you know, letting the reports bounce around. They can only be addressed and relied upon utilized by one lender at a time. So we'll often get that, hey, can you release this to another lender? Yes, we can if we get permission from the first lender to release it. But in your circumstance, Matt, I mean, if someone is going to come along and say, hey, president, come in, we want money off in the middle of a transaction. That should be better backed up, in my opinion. You should be able to see some reasoning for that. I feel like we should at least get some information from yep. somebody. I can imagine. You know, like, because otherwise we just are taking the word for it. You know what's funny with the appraisal? It's like, as a buyer, you're buying something. You're like, man, I hope the appraisal comes in. And if it's low, you're almost upset. You're like, no, you need to appraise it. Like, in this, I'll come yeah. up with the extra money or whatever. Yeah. It's like, you should almost take that what it is, is like the insurance and be like, oh, this 
may not be a good purchase. Like maybe well, I should walk away from like this. That comes right back to our wish that they were done sooner, you know, yeah. because then you know how the both of you, how the emotional attachment is. And that is a peak point. We come in at a peak point, And if we say anything other than what they're thought, it can be an emotional reaction. However, if appraisals, you know, were done earlier in the process or more upfront, everyone figures out their stuff a little sooner. That's a dreamland for me. I know, I know. Yeah. I know. You guys live in a tough market. Hey, like if it doesn't reach to what it should be, people are upset. It appraises for where it should be. And then the market comes down. People yeah. are upset. Like there's not really a lot of win-wins the, unless. The, yeah. the best and most effective folks to work with are the seasoned ones that have been through that. And just keep emotions capped. And I yeah. get it. That's impossible for, you know, primary residents, home buyers, sellers. I, I understand that. I guess that's why you're more on the commercial side as well, right? Like it's a little bit more mathematic, less emotion. It's like, hey, oh, it's, this makes sense. it's yeah. dramatically different. And we do both. Our firm does both. Personally, spend most of my hours in the commercial world. And that means, you know, anything from industrial ag or multifamily or, you know, some new low income housing project or what have you. But then the other side of my firm does the residential. It is it's dramatically different, but we really enjoy both because the different paces balance each other out well. Yeah. In my opinion, you have to have a pulse on both sides to be well-rounded. Some folks only do residential and they're kind of buried in that and some only do commercial, but I think there's a dramatic benefit to considering the greater in any yeah. marketplace. And you guys are fantastic. I've used you a few times personally and for clients, but Thank you. there's a specific niche, like you have to be approved by a certain amount of lenders. But when I'm purchasing like a very unique property, maybe it has a certain type of income, it's on lease land or whatever. Like there's only a few people that can go and actually approach it correctly. So I think it is important for buyers to know, like you're not all the same. You're not just going to tick the boxes. Like you have to find the right person for the right property. Um, for sure. To get yeah, it done. And expertise and experience and certain things. And I think I might know, you know, one of the ones you're talking about and the income approach becomes a very important approach to the lender really you know potentially the only one they really care about they're just flipping right to that page where it's okay what does this unbiased professional think that this mm. property will produce in a year what are we talking for occupancy rates what are they seeing for expenses and produce a net income that's not just a spreadsheet or a piece of paper from a property manager or what have you yeah 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 and one other thing that you said a little while back that resonated with me, I'm thinking like I still have my tax hat on because we just had Nicole Watson, my accountant on. Sure. You said, you know, like you guys will qualify, you'll buy properties as your partnership you have. You'll take a loan, you'll leverage, maybe you lose some money to begin with or whatever for the CapEx and then you just work your butt off and try and pay it off. And, you know, it's always kind of been the motto of real estate investors, like don't buy property that doesn't cash flow like it's just this you know myth that basically you buy and you're wealthy right after <laughs> but it only resonated with me because like we were talking about the cost of cpp and expenses for being full-time like people do not care about working a full-time job and then throwing money away on tax but as a real estate investor people are like i cannot lose money initially like it has to cash flow it's kind of like okay would you rather be a full-time employee and throw money away on cpp that you hope when you're 65 or 70, you start making money off of it. Yeah. Or would you like to kind of control that asset now? And yeah, maybe like people are paying 400 bucks a month in CPP. You okay doing that for the next five years on real estate to hope that that's now your retirement egg? Or do you want to just leave it in the Canadian pension plan? Like, Isn't it funny? So the relative things, some of the justifications don't see you're bang on. 
Like I have numerous examples. I'm looking at a spreadsheet right now, just in case something like this, you know, came up. The cash flow thing, of course, it's important. I get it. Not everyone just has a few thousand lying around for that year to put into it. But it's also, I thought, especially when rates are relatively high now that you're not ready to necessarily buy it until you have an extra $10,000 in your account or somewhere we can get that to beyond your down payment to flow that. Like, so what that doesn't cash flow? I'm looking at one right now where net cash flow is minus 10 grand based on a bunch of variables I'm putting in. Like annually? Yeah, annually, $10,000 that you have, you'd have to make up to cover that mortgage. Yeah. Going into principal, fellas, like, yeah. you know, it's not gone. Yes, you have to have it. You have to get it from somewhere. It has to go into the account. Understand that. But you can also, you know, save up a little longer increase your down payment, I can literally put in a number and it'll show, okay, that's the down payment. They need to have a zero cash flow or at least $1 positive. And people lose sight of that in the greater picture. Like, yes, you have to look at the opportunity loss of that 10,000, what you could have made on in theory otherwise, but in terms of what real estate can produce long-term, sorry, it like crushes any long-term other investment that I've ever seen. I know. When you go into leverage, you have to leverage it, guys. To, in order to get this ROI that is true and makes sense and get it to be beyond what just a cap rate is, I think it is my daily life to talk about cap rates and commercial rates return and multifamily, all that kind of thing. And you know, okay, they're 5%. That's 5% as if you're just buying the thing outright and you're not leveraging. You have to leverage. If you leverage, we're just talking about your return on your initial you know, down payment and equity. PTT amount, of course, closing costs, they add in there. But, you know, if you're leveraging 75%, in other words, you're throwing 25% down or 30% down-ish, that's kind of a nice magic-y number. We're talking 15 to 22% returns. Yeah. So that's what you've kind of seen in your portfolio over the last 10 years or so. With, Greater, but yeah. I have to scale that back because I don't believe that every next 10 years, sure. yeah. 10 years we, are yeah. going to be the same growth that we saw. Yeah. But that's um, including like appreciation, cash flow, principal pay down. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course, you have to include appreciation. North Okanagan appreciation over the last 36 has been 7.2% a year. Central, 7. 36 years? 7.4 over the last 36 years. That you, is amazing. That's just appreciation. That's averaged out. Obviously, we had some recent years here where yeah. we saw like 30s, 40%. Yeah. But, you know, Matt, you pull up those stats and run on a matrix, you know, whatever it's called there now. And we've got 1987 <laughs> average home value and clone of, I looked last night, I think it was like 81,000. Can we expect that kind of exponential growth? No, but I mean, even if we tone that down, so saying we've proven over the last 36 that it's been 7.4 in Central Okanagan, even if we use 4%, I got 4% pension into my thing here, you could use three. You have a 4% of a $950,000 purchase. We're just talking about kind of the most basic residential yeah. investment. It's that single family with the good suite. That's the beauty. It's the most clean. So we're talking about 5,000 bucks in rent a month. And... We've seen, you know, operating expense ratios in the 25% to less on some of our new stuff, but you have to think about appliances. You got to think about roof long-term. So using about a 30% expense ratio, once all the numbers come out and you allow 4% appreciation, even at, you tell me, Taylor, I've punched in here at a five and a quarter mortgage rate. Am I low? I mean, that's high for what we've seen historically. Of course, but, but I mean, yeah, for now. That's comfortable, yeah. So the point is, even now, I hear all these things and, and I listen to tidbits of folks on your show and you know, it's tough and cash flow. Yep. I get it. You're not putting money in your bank right now. 
It is not. However, even considering that negative cash flow, I'm showing a 16.5% return on a purchase that I know exists out there that you can make 5,000 a month on and at a five and a quarter mortgage rate with 25% down. Yeah. So the proofs there. That 7%-ish over the last 36 years actually aligns really well. We had the BC chief economist on for our BCREA. Sure. I think it was 76 or 79% was the appreciation over the next 10 years. Like, so that aligns really well with the last 36 years. Doesn't it's kind it? of like, yeah. we're just continuing on that. Until 2030. Until 2030. Is it? Yeah. yeah. So it's just continuing on that trend. It's funny, the cash flow conversation. I had this with a client. They're yeah. talking about keeping as a rental and buying a primary residence or selling and how they should structure it. And we're talking about capital gains, whatever. And I, you know, I was like, so I did the, my analysis on my own spreadsheet that sure. I share with clients. I'm like, yeah. you know, if you were to keep this property and then buy another one, this would lose you about 500 bucks a month. So are you comfortable doing that? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. You know, like it's a write-off. Yeah. I was like, well, not oh, really. <laughs> you can't write off the principal that you're paying into that. So no, it's like, actually not. like from a tax point of view, like it is profitable. And I'm not like trying to encourage people to go buy something that cash flows negatively, but from CRA, that property is making money because you're paying down your principal, which is just going into your bank account. That's exactly it. The CRA, the annual statements are different than the reality because you can't throw principal in there. And the you mentioned like $500 a month. It's not a loss. It's you're a savings just, account. You're just parking it into real property. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Except for as you get like two well, kinds of return. And that's what I was talking about with CPP. It's like people are okay to spend X amount of dollars. On, well, I mean, you have to, but you can't do it cash flow wise for a property, which technically by taxes, it's making money. Anyways, yeah, that could talk yeah, about it, forever. My only comment on you know, cash flow is yeah. it just makes it harder to buy more, right? Because like kind of for sure you're, in terms of qualifying yeah qualifying and, and just being able to you can't take $500 loss on this one and buy another one for another $500 loss and buy another one for another five like there's a limit for like, sure understood yeah. term anyway. yeah in the short term if I punch in what they were a couple years ago uh, to get you know some 2.7 percent two and a half percent mortgage rates then it's going to literally flip the other way where it's 10,000 but it's not like those inputs to make the mortgage payments are lost. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, yes, in a way to a lender to qualify, that's like they're lost. It's going out. I get it. But it all comes back to just working your butt off between purchases to build up for that next one. I'm not a big believer myself, and this is a big debate, and I get it. I obviously understand that you get further and farther. I'm not a big believer in leveraging properties. Get off the show. We, Get out of here. We've done that a couple of times and hey, it works out great. But for me and what's worked for us, and I think a lot of folks is because we see the other side of that where folks just get too buried in it and aren't just more like a focused on, okay, now I got to get back to work in my other life and my other source of income here just to pound that out to save up for that next down payment for the next one. Yeah. So that's individual. It's whatever stress level, you know, folks can tolerate. But there's a point where it can go beyond and you can't screw up the quality of your life or cause yourself additional stress and anxiety just for that either. So finding that blend of what works for you and what you can tolerate. Obviously, you go through life, I can tolerate a heck of a lot more now and thought of risk now than I could uh, earlier. And that's just natural. But you got to find what works for you as long as you're on the push side of things and doing your best to never look back and have that grandfather story of I should have bought that whole hillside. I would, you know, yeah. you just have to know that when you look back, you're like, no, nope, I did everything I could, you know? So that's my thought on how I want to look back. Yeah, I agree. Well, to wrap this up, we'll fire a few more questions at you. Please. Um, if you could buy one property in the Okanagan in the next 12 months, what would it be? 
downtown Vernon, BC commercial real estate that I can someday either sell or put on multi-story, primarily residential. Nice. Love it. What is the best thing you've ever spent any money on? Hands down, anything that draws or keeps my family in one space for a certain amount of time. That can be many things. You know, it can be a boat. It can be another toy, like a four-seater side-by-side that gets you into the mountains and gets you some mountain therapy or a trip or a backyard above-ground pool. I don't care. It's something that forces my family to stay in a confined area and have a great reason to hang out. That is awesome. So do your kids play sports? They do. Yeah. So my wife and I are talking about this lot right now. This is kind of a topic of our mind. It's sure. like, what do we get our 10-month-old son yeah. to do? Like, do we go skiing so that we can do it together? Do we get a boat so we can do it together? Do we play hockey where we all just watch him? Like, what do you think? Sounds like you think do something together. I like together. I mean, if you're a big hockey guy, now's probably the time to get that stick in his hands. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's just breaking stuff in your house. Yes. Just get it started. But I'm a proponent of both because they have to also be away from you and socialize with their peers. So, Learn how to so that a team. And all yeah, that. that soccer team thing exactly is super important. Like to be involved if I can in some coach way or bring in the oranges or whatever, but being together and doing it together, I firmly believe in, like I mentioned, the quad up into the mountains or whatever, experiencing that and getting away from the hustle and bustle that we've created down here. You just can't put a value on that in in, in that time. I mean, we sent, we talk here, value, 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 value. Nothing even touches time. Time is the most important thing we got. When you have kids, like yeah, with your kids, yeah. Yeah. How do you give back? What's a charity you like? I call it C&C and that's community and cancer. The community thing, my opinion to any good professional and or firm or group of folks is giving back to the community, you know, in which they operate or practice and which has given them so much. So I spent many years as a Rotarian that really benefited all concerned. And it's one of their sayings, myself and family included, ran out of time to do it effectively. So step back for a while, but giving to any of their causes that are local, we raised a lot of money with different uh, auctions over the years, physically directly handed it to some of the very good not-for-profits that we have locally. I think that international is very important and a certain percentage of everything that we give, that needs to be thought about. But community first is big for me. Cancer is the next one. We all have connections and stories with that one. Brain tumor cancer, big one for us. Our firm has given to that. In the past, I lost a dear uncle to a glioblastoma. And I think that's a for me, uh, one that needs to really be focused on all of them. And it starts with us given what and when we can to some decade or century being able to say, Psh, that one's gone. We can yeah. cross that one off. So yeah, community cancer is big for us. So we certainly set aside a portion each year of our revenue to donate. Nice. Awesome. One last question is how uh, can we, our audience or our listener, help you? Ah, give us a buzz. I am the first to always say and speak to good realtors all the time, brokers, market participants. Like, just give us a call. Yeah, I might not have hours to chat, but I always have five and see you know, what we're all up to and how we can assist. But look us up, DS Appraisers, and we practice throughout the Okanagan, Shushwap, Kamloops area, and uh, always happy to chat. Remaining optimistic and wanting to learn about investment is step one. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, fellas. Pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to the Kelowna Real Estate Podcast. Be sure to reach out and let us know how else we can add value to your Kelowna real estate journey. Please show some support by hitting the like, share, and subscribe button. This is sponsored by Matt Glenn Real Estate and Taylor Adventure Mortgages.